people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. I started to experiment with drugs, did a lot of shady stuff. I hurt a lot of people. Scooter just paints anything. He'll paint the plates, he'll paint you if you get too close. I used to like to call him Little Picasso. I'm still afraid that people aren't going to like me or accept me. A lot of comments that people make to me are like, wow, that's a beautiful painting, but it's sad, too. He's managed to combine the punk rock attitude with the opposite, with a lighthearted and sweet sense of humor. There's hidden everywhere, but that's what's so amazing about Scooter's work. Scooter's work was everywhere. I couldn't avoid it, and I really liked it. I do think he has a bright vision of the future of the world, but he also is smart enough to pick up on the detritus of society that gets in the way. Openly flamboyant and openly gay, and dressed that way and presented myself that way. When you have a painting by Scooter, it really has a presence. They become these objects that are charged, and it's really like an act of magic. I was hoping that I would die. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, you're going to hear from Ethan Minsker, the director of the new documentary, Scooter LaForge, A Life of Art. You're also going to be hearing from Mr. LaForge himself. Their documentary premieres Wednesday, November 8th, 2023 at 9.15 p.m. at the IFC Center as part of the Doc NYC Festival. There are a few more dates after that. Be sure to check out the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more information and a link over to docnyc.net, where you can find out all of the screenings that are available. I'll also have links over to the Facebook and Instagram page where you can keep up with the documentary, and hopefully you'll see it at a local venue if you're not in New York. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the interview. Who met who first? Who know who knew who first? How did you become aware of each other? There is an artist in a bunch of my films named James Rubio. And there's also a gallery that I do a lot of events with called Hal Happening. And Scooter shows a lot with Hal. I show films and do some other projects there too. And there was an artist who also does a lot of stuff with Hal, James Rubio, who, if you've seen other films I've done, he's kind of this reoccurring character in those films. 
and he kept pushing Scooter. You got to check this guy out. You got to check his art out. I really love his art. And so insistent on it that to the point of really just annoying me where I was like, well, I'm not going to check him out. I, I just really not going to do it because you're really irritating me with how much you're pushing it. But then when I finally did see his artwork, I just fell in love with the work. I felt there was a lot of similar themes into what I seek out creatively. And then when I met Scooter, I got along with him instantly. I call him human Valium. So there's something about Scooter where if I'm like, you know, I'm more of an agitated person, like usually running on anger. And he is somebody who just kind of like calms me down immediately. I guess, yeah, I met him through the galleries and then was introduced to by him by several different artists. And then I started pursuing him on this concept of making a video and we would see if that would turn into a larger project. Peter, what did you first think of this strange man uh, coming up to you and wanting to uh, do a documentary about you? I think it was for four years I said no, because I'm very private, Mike, and I don't let people into my house or studio. You know, I had to get to know him. It took it took almost four years. Scooter, can you describe your artwork for folks that may not be familiar with it? Yeah, it would be like golden books on acid. How long have you been an artist? Since I was six years old. And I would say in, in the world, because I come from a family of very creative people. My mother, my father, my two sisters, my grandparents on both sides of my dad and my mom's side of the family, their grandparents and their grandparents. And we've got that I know eight generations of creative people in the southwestern part of the United States. So it's D, it's it's in the DNA and it, it goes through the blood at this point in time. I mean, it's all I know. So I imagine they were pretty supportive. No, no, no. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. No. Why were they hesitant for you to be an artist when they already had art in their blood? Oh, it's, it's generational. They did the best they could. It was a long road for me and uh, a lot of pushback. Going to accounting, going to um, a safe job where you're, you're pushing a piece of paper back and forth on a desk every day from nine to five is really what I was pushed to do. And that went against the grain of every ounce of my fiber it was just a struggle but it got me here today where i am up now ethan how did you manage to wear scooter down after four years i mean i did a lot of research on him you know that if you search scooter laforge you'll find countless videos and interviews and articles from forbes magazine to the new york times there's tv footage like there's just tons of tons of content of him you know talking to him it was like first he let me come and just cover some of the shows you know being like documentation in my world is everything i try to document everything i do and you know i said like let me start with like a little video and he was very clear like you know just don't put like cartoon music because if you see like there's a lot of these videos and he has a lot of pop culture reference in his work meaning cartoons, but a lot of other things too. But some of these videos, they put cartoon like as a backing track to it, which I think undercuts 
the message of what Scooter's trying to do. And I was like, I'm very, I promise you from the beginning, I absolutely will not add cartoon music. I try to incorporate musicians that I know and musicians that Scooter knows and try to make it that the soundtrack is, is as organic to the film and to the subject for each of these films. So yeah, like I think once he started to see kind of the rough cuts, because I with Scooter, I would show him, you know, update like everything we would shoot week to week so he could see how the film could like grow. And I think that I, from my perspective, like made him more comfortable with me making the film. Would you agree with that, Scooter? No, no. That, that came after the fact. I had to trust Ethan and trust who he was first and see what kind of guy he was. And it took a few years. And then I started to get the vibe of his aura and his scene and his inner, you know, being. And I saw that he was a kind person and he didn't have an agenda that was, you know, self-seeking or just self-gratifying. So I, I, once I started to see that, I opened it up more and more for him to come into my life and to start to come into to film the work in the studio. That cartoon thing came later because someone had just done a, a documentary with cartoon music and I wanted something different. I wanted something new and fresh. Because I, you know, I mean, I get sick of myself. Don't you, Mike? Yeah, I, I'm sick of myself. I hate myself. I want new. I want I want new stuff. I always want new things. I I uh I just wanted fresh new stuff. So I told him not to do any of that cartoon stuff and he got it. So we we got some more music from my good friend Phil Lafa and some music from Ethan's friends and uh another good DJ friend of mine, Seth Troxler. And you know, and I also wanted Ethan's artwork in the film, his his uh animation which i fell in love with the more animation for me the better and the more interesting how do you go about putting together this documentary about scooter's life i mean do you say okay we're just going to start at birth and work up to now or what's that process for you ethan and and how do you partner with scooter on this well, I think a lot of Scooter's work is about, and he'll correct me because he's always doing this to me. He's like my brother type of thing. Scooter's work is centered around a lot of automatism, which, right, Scooter? Like automatism, kind of this like natural progression. That's a part of it, yeah. A natural progression of the artwork. And I think a lot of my films also tap into that, that I like to shoot interviews, shoot events, and see how the film grows over time. And there's some things that are kind of in, inescapable when documentaries. You have to sort of set up the person, like who he is, who his background is. So there is that in the beginning of the film, the introduction, where he came from, how he got into art. And then I let the story follow kind of his path. And then at a certain point, we switched into the present. So it's no longer telling, you know, his history, but then what it was happening currently during the pandemic. But even within those parts, the way the story grew, we would shoot an interview, then I would, you know, edit it. We would shoot some events, edit it, 
add some animation, and then come back to things that I felt were missing and do re-interviews. So I felt like it really kind of grew over time, but it does have a lot of the structure of documentaries intermixed with a lot of the experimentals with visuals. I believe that like, um, you know, when you're watching a film, you should continuously be surprised either by what you're hearing, learning, or seeing. So that was like the way I shape all the films that I do, but especially this one that it had to match Scooter's, you know, Scooter is a person like his, if you watch another film I made, you would see that it's much faster paced and it's a lot more insanity, but that met, matched my personality in that subject of the film. Where this one, I want it to be a little more smooth, a little more following his pace and his style of who he is and as an artist. At least that's what I was attempting to do. What did you say your guys' relationship was during this process? Were you more partners or were you treating Scooter like a client? I mean, was Ethan being kind of invasive? I mean, what, what's that relationship between you two as this is going on? Invasive is the antithesis of what he was. He was very, you know, just kind of go with the flow as far as what happened in my life during these past five years. And most of it centered around the pandemic. And a lot of the ill is based on the George Floyd riots on Bowery Street, which is Ethan and my, my neighborhood how we sort of turned Manhattan into an art gallery due to the fact that every single building on that street got looted to filth. There was nothing less left in any businesses on Bowery. And I saw, I was out there, I was there, and I saw several businesses go from pristine, gorgeous boutiques, high-end, to absolutely nothing. Everything in the store, doll. Even if there's a 7-Eleven there, there was not even a piece of beef jerky left on the shelves. And I, I saw it from beginning to end. And I filmed it. Skateboarders smashing in the windows with skateboards, going in, getting bags, Rolexes, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Slurpees, gum, beer, beef jerky, candy bars, you know, the whole nine yards. Starting, starting cars on fire. Police cars were, were lit and doused with gasoline and that ignited. But that was my second riot. I was there in the, the Rodney King riots in, in San Francisco, and I was in Union Square, and I saw Chanel, Gucci, television, you know, the stores that had TVs in there, all looted. I was, I was there for that one, too. You know, just kind of watching and being, you know, experience that his, history of these, these American riots. Ethan, how would you describe your relationship I think collaboratively. I think of this film as an art project more than trying to make... I definitely don't think of it as a commercial entity at all because, you know, documentaries and the films I make, you know, they make very little money, if any, at all. So for me, it has to be about try, trying to create the best art project that I can, something that I'll look back on, you know, five, 10, 20 years from now and be proud that I put the effort into it. You know, it wasn't like work. It was like fully pleasure. Like every shot I made, everything I was animating, I just really put a lot of love and passion into it. And if it ever turned into something that felt more like work, then I would have just, you know, stopped working on the project. 
when would you say that you started the the work proper? You know, we talked about the lead up to this, but when would you say like, okay, we're doing this project? When was that time? I think 2019, I, I shot the Spring Break art show that he was in. No, or there was a show, there was another show that were like 50 artists, something about Stonewall. It was something around those same times. Yeah, I, I think it was at Stonewall art opening that you came to in 2019. It sounds like the documentary was really shaped by the pandemic and the events that occurred during the pandemic. Am I wrong by saying that? No, the last third is is definitely about that. Yeah, he, he started filming a couple years prior to, I would say, and then the pandemic hit, and then that was another layer into the, the film. I think a lot of people during the pandemic, they either shut down and decided to pull back from what they were working on, but I went the other direction and just said, like, if I'm not making pay, like as, as the day job, you know, working as um, an editor, then I would fully focus on what I was doing creatively. So I just like ramped everything up, this film and a, a few other projects. And, you know, the problem, the biggest problem I had was that the stuff I had been working on for the couple of years before or the year before were on drives at my work location and they weren't letting us in the office. So I was like having a panic attack being like, you know, I'm going to lose everything I've done up to this point. And finally, like basically a year and a half later, they let me in and I got everything back. But I had kept shooting and editing on my own system without all of the other footage. So I'm really happy that I got all of that back. But even during the pandemic, during the lockdowns and stuff, we would meet and film some of these interviews outside. So I think it had to be a part of the film because, you know, we were covering kind of, you know, the film is, is this film about an artist just beginning to hit his stride, filming him during that, where you see a lot of art documentaries, it's kind of reflecting back on an artist in their prime. This is an artist just starting to get to his prime. He's like really just doing amazing stuff. And from this point, he's going to do much more amazing stuff. So I really wanted to just get in there and focus on that part of it. And then when the pandemic hit, I was like, I, I can't really see excluding that because you're seeing everyone wearing masks. And then we had to socially distance when we're filming. And I felt like that was a part of the story as well, because Scooter as an artist doesn't really wait around to find out what is going to happen. He adapts like immediately. So if he doesn't have galleries, he puts art on the streets. If he's not selling artwork on canvases, he'll make clothing and really adaptable. And I thought that was like a great learning experience for me as a creator, as an artist. But sharing that with the world could be something valuable because, you know, we're going to have other things like this happen again, whether it's like a global or local. And I found it very inspiring. And I thought that would make a good addition to the film. I know as a writer, if I write something, put it in the proverbial drawer and then bring it back out a month, two months, three months later, it's like somebody else made that. Was it a similar experience for you when you got those drives back and you were able to look at the, that old footage that you had shot and the, the editing that you had done to that point? Yeah, no, definitely. 
I do this system of when I edit, I make a, a rough cut and then I share that rough cut with people. I did that to you at one point as an earlier version of this and I get the feedback and that also helps like seeing it kind of through that perspective of someone else's eyes. But I also like I bounce back from project to broch project. So I will periodically, whether the pandemic or not, is try to take a break for a month or two and not look at it and work on something else and then leapfrog back to it. Because it is like what you say, it is this thing where you kind of get fresh eyes on it. And, you know, I really do want something that's in this day and age is something that is really keeping up the pace and never losing your interest. And it's really hard to do that when you've just watched it over and over again. Scooter, what is your process as far as when you're creating art? Are you creating one thing at a time and just focusing on that? Or are you bouncing back and forth? I'm definitely bouncing back and forth to several different, you know, hats that I wear, whether it's going into costume design, painting murals, doing commissions, uh, designing t-shirts, just whatever's out there and whatever is pulling me towards that, if, as long as that entity that's pulling me towards them is positive and, and I feel loved there, I'll go there and create. And, uh, you know, that's how I work. You know, it's taken me around the world. I get invited to Chicago, to Greece, to Spain, to Italy, just to to do the... These painted t-shirts actually have, have brought me around the world because uh, I, I go there and I do t-shirt painting seminars all over the place. People are very interested in it and, and uh, I'm very collaborative, you know, worker. I love collaborating with people. So that's really extended my art career because I branched out into movies, television, to costume design, to set design, licensing, licensing out paintings. I have a lot of costume designer friends. I, I loan stuff to Mike White's White Lotus. Who I thought you were at first. Yeah. I I did did some of the costumes for the first season and then it just goes on and on, you know, and that you know, it's like the Pantene hair commercial and then they tell two friends and then they tell two friends and so on and so on and so on. Have you always been able to sustain yourself through your artwork or have you have uh, have you ever had to work a, a day job? Oh, I've worked at a lot of day jobs, but for the past twenty years it's been self sustained but i've worked everywhere from yeah i i worked for the yellow pages i worked i worked for wells fargo bank when when atms first came out in the early 90s um i i worked in the cafeteria i cleaned houses in san francisco uh waiter busboy uh designers jimmy choo mark jacobs Spinell. those were the last jobs that i had and then once i started my I was making money doing my artwork I went down to part-time and then I just took a leap of faith almost 20 years ago and you know the universe has provided for me you know there's months where I don't work but then there's weeks that I do work and I make a lot of money and I put it in the bank and save it for a rainy day just in case I don't have any jobs for the next few months but I've been I've been doing it for a long time and and I've been by it's day to day. Ethan, the last time we talked, when we talked about man and camo, you 
we're talking about how you are always looking to make things better. I think you said like what, 5% or even just 1%. You're just striving, striving, striving. I'm so curious. What were some of those things that you discovered as you were making this that were helping you make this documentary even better? I think, you know, like the man in camo was kind of like a template of trying to push my style aggressively so that when someone would watch a film, they should quickly identify that stylistically as a Ethan Minsker film. The Scooter film is trying to follow that style, but slowing the pace down to match Scooter's personality and really trying to push the, the more, a little more experimental side of it. So I guess it's like the more I do it, I think, and the more I push away from just focusing on documenting my own story and adding other people's stories that I can use all of the kind of tools in my toolbox that I've learned for creating my own project. So it, it might mean more subtle transitions. It might mean more handcrafted. And when I say handcrafted, I mean making transitions where I'm using cardboard to change from one scene to another or stitching fabric across so that it actually looks like something physical in the frame, something that is still extremely low budget, but has a higher impact as a visual style. So I think that's more of the progression of the way I'm heading now is I can't compete with the multi-million dollar films. I don't have like a big team backing me. It's like I work a job, I save up, I film. And I think I can compete with a lot of those other films in the fact that I could make it stylistically something unique for the viewer. And that's at least the hope and what I'm always trying to progress for. The the little bit better is always in the edit. It's like I'll screen it to somebody and I try to aim for like a point like a you know eight meaning like the, a 10 would be a perfect film and that's like unlimited budget but recutting and adding animation adding little parts in and just trying to make it a little bit better to get it up to what would be an eight and that's kind of the same thing that even i've been submitting to festivals and i shot with scooter a month ago to do a couple little insert pickups of like what artwork he was doing currently and then i clean those up and added it into the cut and i think the film again is just like five percent better than the last time there was a cut and i probably will still keep continuously changing it until a distributor pries it from my hands and takes it away scooter how many versions of this movie do you think you've seen now i've probably seen like seven to eight how is it seeing your yourself portrayed it's interesting i mean it's definitely I try and get as many people involved with it as this as possible on that, you know, just because for me, it seems like it's boring. I don't want people to be bored as I, because I am pretty boring myself. That's why I want Ethan's animation in there and get my friends in there and get the, the homeless people in there. And, you know, the, the real city life of, that I is part of my day to day, you know, experience. Ethan is scooter boring. Not to me. I have good time when I'm hanging out with them. It's always hard to watch yourself on film, though. I can totally empathize and understand that, that feeling. I mean, the last film I made, 
you know, was a total film about myself. So it's hard to watch yourself, but I think most people, if they give this film a chance, they'll be entertained and they'll fall in love with the person, the story, and what he does creatively. I find that's kind of, you know, when I show this as cuts to other artists, they were like, oh, I've seen his work, but now I, you know, now I fully get it and I'm like more invested and, you know, so it's the magic of like really diving into somebody's story. And Scooter is somebody who's like, you know, he is very guarded with that. And even at his openings, it's like not as easy to, you know, dealing with crowds. It's something we talk about in the film. You know, and I can understand with that is also like I'm sitting here with a camouflage suit on and everything I do online, I have like the camouflage suit and, you know, that's my protection. And when I'm not in the camo suit, I don't think people recognize me on the street. So this is like my Superman versus my Clark Kent. I can understand where Scooter's coming from. You know, it's like your public persona meets your private and who you are in everyday life. And Nathan's very recognizable to me. I don't because he's a big guy and he's covered in tattoos and, you know, he has a big presence. And, um, you know, I have a lot of friends in New York City and, you know, people always seem to stop me, you know, and yell at me where I'm on the subway, you know. And that city just becomes very small. It's like a little tiny village. Have you seen the movie with an audience yet? No, we haven't done that yet. I, I've shared that with, with some good friends of mine who are very, very um, particular and they, they like it and they would be very honest with me and uh, I'm open to any criticism just, just so it's entertaining and uh, again, people don't get bored and I wanted something a little different. So everything that I've heard as far as feedback has been positive and I really encourage Ethan to Go out on a limb and be different. Don't have a documentary because, you know, it gets old. You know, it, it, it just, you know, I wanted something different. That's why I encourage all the uh, animation, animation, Ethan animation, favorite parts. Did you two get along completely through this whole process or was there ever Definitely. any artistic? No. Absolutely, the whole process wow. got along. It absolutely no guards put up, as far as I'm concerned, or you know, feeling uncomfortable. Not an ounce of that. That's why, you know, I I think it was successful because he is very easy to be around, and that's his job to make me comfortable, and he did that. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know. Maybe I know annoyed Ethan because I, you know. But I don't. He didn't bug me at all. No, he teases me a lot. That's what he does sometimes, and I deserve it, so it's fine. But no, w that's part of our friendship too. You don't really see that on the, the camera. Ethan, you mentioned, uh, putting it in for some festivals. Is that the next step of this film? Yeah, it will have its world premiere at Doc NYC, November. The festival itself is between November 8th and the 26th. And because we're recording this early in at the end of August, I'm not sure when the actual screening date is. But yeah, Doc NYC uh, this year, 
November between November 8th and the 26th. And then they also have an online component during the festival where they will sell a thousand virtual tickets that people can watch from anywhere in the United States. It's geotagged within the United States or North America. I guess that includes Canada too. So if people want to watch it, you can see it no matter where you are out there in the projection booth audience of the world. And after that, I'm only focusing on this festival right now at this point. Do you have a place where people can keep up with it? So if you do get another festival date, where you're going to post that at? Yeah, we have primarily it's on the Instagram page. There's also a Facebook page for it, but I really, you know, focus more on the Instagram page. So if you go to search, even if you just search Scooter LaForge, you'll see the film page and that's Scooter LaForge, A Life of Art. And if you search Scooter LaForge, you'll also find Scooter's personal page so you can follow his art. And I think he also has a fashion page too on there because it's like his fine art, his clothing, and then this film. Scooter, what are you working on these days? Uh, these days, I just finished painting a really large mural in a private house in, in, in Williamsburg. And then I'm going to paint a mural at the University of Arizona where I went to college. And then I'll come back to New York City and I'll have a big t-shirt show at Al Happening Gallery. The gallery is going to be filled with pure hand-painted t-shirts. That's going to be really cool and exciting because uh, it'll just be all these hand-painted t-shirts filling up this huge white gallery. And that's going to be November 1st is the opening there. And then um, I got another show coming up with Stephanie Theodore Gallery of Flowers in December. And then, uh, you know, next year is another year for the hamster wheel. Just go on the hamster wheel again and go another another revolution around. I'm just going in circles, chasing my tail. Ethan, I know you said that you bounce back and forth between a lot of projects. What else are you working on these days? I have a horror film that I'm starting to do pre-production on that we'll be shooting. I take, you know, my films take about three to four years to do. So that's three to four years in the future. I have another documentary that's close to finished that you're in, actually, but I'm oh, not supposed hooray, to Mike. talk more <laughs> Can't about wait to it. see that. Yay, Mike. Um, so, yeah, that film is a, another one that should be getting done, but I can't really say too much about it until, you know, we finish all the contracting and all of that stuff for it. But hopefully that'll be the next one up in the pike. And then I start teaching at Fashion Institute of Technology this Thursday for wow. production. FIT, baby. FIT. Well, guys, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Mike, thank you. And Ethan, thank you for, for setting this up. Well, thank all of you guys. I would like to say to the Projection Booth listeners out there that I listen to so many of these uh, special report episodes. I take a lot of info from that. I learn a lot from it. I find it to be a very valuable tool out there. I highly recommend it. It's not just something historical as far as like contacting and interviewing all of these people who are filmmakers and a lot of them 
that end up passing away shortly after he's doing these interviews. It's, it's just such a valuable tool for me personally and the filmmaking community that I don't think enough people actually take the time to thank you for what you're doing. And as a filmmaker in the filmmaking community and future generations of filmmakers, we all applaud and thank you for your effort and work, good sir. Well, thank you. I am, uh, it doesn't look like it, but I'm blushing. So thank you very much.